So as I talk through this, first and foremost, I want you to think about yourself. About no one else, but, but yourself. Because one of the easiest ways to gain instant reputation, some of you might know, I know this, because this is true of me, and I'm sure this is true of you, is when you drop the names of famous people or things you either know or you're associated somehow with. So here are a few examples I bet you can relate with. Your beloved team has just won its championship. When you arrive at work the next day, you either wait for a friend to ask, did you see the game yesterday? And you're itching to respond. And you say, we won yesterday. You don't say they won, you say, we won, as if you're a part of it. And you beam from ear to ear. In some small way, you've climbed up the reputation ladder because you, you kind of feel better about yourself. You're looked at better after this. Like, oh, that's the guy. His team won. <laughs> or at least for a day. Even if no one talks to you, you maybe you stand a little taller. Like, you feel really good. You've been waiting for so long, and they finally won. You're a little happier when you drive your kids to school. Or maybe you have a slight spring in your step. And this happens in everyday conversation. Maybe your political party just secured its seats, or your kid made the honor roll. You see those stickers on the back end of those cars proudly display, like, my kid's an honor roll student. Your kid's nuts. Or you just nailed your exam earlier that day. Maybe you're related to fame, either a person or some movement, and you relish telling everybody about it. It's like, I'm related to this guy. Or this girl. Who are you related to? I'm cool. These feel great, don't they? Kind of in the moment, they feel good. But the, the question is, do they last? Do, you, do people remember what you did three months ago, let alone that your team won three months ago? The feeling kind of subsides after a little bit. It's not unlike the morning cold gives way to the afternoon heat. You kind of forget about it. You throw your jacket back into the car nice and warm. We all want so desperately to be associated with success. Unless we think this is just everybody else, we can think about this with our theologians. Like, I'm associated with this guy. That means I'm right. We'll go to such great lengths to secure this. But as you well know, it doesn't last. At the end of this chapter, this third chapter, John testifies, this is his cousin. This is, this is the guy he's related to. That's the Messiah. His cousin's the Messiah. As opposed to Nicodemus' touting his supposed knowledge. He's like, I'm the ruler of the Jews. I'm the top dog. Like, Jesus, you've got to listen to me. And yet, what does John do? He downplays himself and he uplifts Jesus. A model for you and I because John's identity is grounded in Christ that he might magnify Christ. So earlier in John 3, Nicodemus confronts Jesus, we saw, and his, his ignorance is, is, is out there. He wants to show his knowledge. It's like, let's try to get you in a little corner, Jesus. I'm going to figure you out. And then who's figured out but Nicodemus? John is then confronted in basically the same way. 
if you track the questions, they're, they're about the same questions that Jesus was asked by Nicodemus. But he responds perfectly. So the question is, how will you respond? First, we'll, we'll dive into this with the question concerning Jesus, verses 22 to 26. How will John respond? Because he's asked the same questions that Jesus is by Nicodemus. And then second is John's testimony, verses 27 to 32. He responds, not as the Christ, but as a friend of the Christ, as a friend of the bridegroom, who has come for his bride. He's like, stop looking at me. Look at that guy. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. And then lastly, your response, verses 33 to 36. John lays out who Jesus is very clearly and what he came to you. And then he, he points out the two things. You either believe him or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no, oh, I'm not sure. It's either you believe what he did or you don't believe what he did. So I pray this comes clear throughout. Because the testimony about Jesus is true, you can magnify Christ. We'll start with point one. Question concerning Jesus. Starting in verse 22. So if you remember... First part of chapter 3 is all about Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes at night, explains his mission and work to the Messiah, and Jesus rejoins his disciples, or Jesus explains his mission and joins the disciples, and they go to Judah. Jesus speaks to the Jewish elites, begin this chapter, and then speaks to the lowest of society, a Samaritan woman, in chapter 4. You can kind of think, two bookends of society. And this sets the scene for John in verse 23. It's the first time we've seen John since chapter 1. Right in the middle of chapter 1. He's coming to Anon. There's a couple ways to describe this. Nobody's terribly sure where Anon is or Salim. But it's somewhere east of Mount Gerizim. And that's interesting. Because what is the Samaritan woman? We're not there yet. The Samaritan woman describes Mount Gerizim. Because that's where she says our fathers worships. And so he's connecting these two stories. They're near Mount Gerizim, and then the Samaritan woman talks about Mount Gerizim in chapter 4. And lots of water, as good Presbyterians, lots of water for sprinkling. Because it, it probably means they're filing through this water. And look at what John, the gospel writer, says next in verse 24. It's a little odd. John's prison time is talked about here. If your, if your translation's like mine, it has little parentheses. It's, it's kind of like a, uh, John is telling you, like, John has not, John the gospel writer has not, has, John the baptizer has not been put in prison yet. No one in this story, again, these characters, these real characters, John's disciples, have no idea that's about to happen. You do. They don't. Because what John the baptizer says next, which is why it's clued to you, this is why he goes to prison. He says he's not yet been thrown in prison because he hasn't yet said this. Now that he says this, they're like, we got to get this guy. He's not thrown into prison because he's some religious zealot or a threat to the political order. 
At least he's not, and they kind of think he is. But because he believes Jesus, because he says this, that's why he's thrown into prison. Which is why they front. He's not been put into prison because he hasn't yet proclaimed Jesus like this. So in verse 25, we are clued into the conversation between John's disciples and some surrounding Jews who likely are the ones who gave John up to imprisonment. They're probably the ones who told the Pharisees, told the Sadducees, like, hey, we've got we to gotta get this guy. This is not good. He's taking away everybody from us. So what are they arguing about? What's this dispute that's got them all tangled up? They're trying to figure out purification. But here's the thing. They know what purification is. It's not a question of like how we do it, where we do it. They've got the book of the law. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. It's not like they don't know what purification is. They know precisely what it is. They have the Mosaic law. That there's a possibility that they heard a word about what Jesus did to the stone jars. Because they know, what are the stone jars used for? It's for the Levitical and Aaronic purification. And they're like, that's weird. Why did he use that to turn it into wine? That's probably why they're talking about purification. It's like, Jesus did something different. There's something weird about this. We have to figure this out. They might be thinking, based off what Jesus just did at the wedding, turning water into wine, does that mean something for us? Does this change how we view purification? They're also traveling with John, who is baptizing. And baptizing, generally speaking, is for purification. Everything they thought they knew about purification, about the Old Testament, is now starting to crumble. Now starting to come into question. It seems in some sense they're realizing in some way, shape, or form that now that Jesus has come, things are a little different. Their discussion starts out innocent enough, but listen to what they say in verse 26. They approached John, both the disciples and a Jew. It could be multiple. And how do they start their statements? Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all who are with him. There's a reason why they start with Rabbi. How does Nicodemus start his statements earlier in chapter 3? Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs except God is with them. They're copying Nicodemus. Why John puts this right after Nicodemus in John 3? They're questioning Jesus. They're questioning John on account of Jesus. John's telling you without telling you that what we heard from Nicodemus is now coming from John's disciples to John. And what we're waiting for now is is how is John going to respond? Is he going to respond the same way Jesus did? Or is he going to lose it? The leader of the Jews, the elite of the elite, Nicodemus confronts Jesus with this statement. He falls flat in his face. That's the only context we have. We're wondering, what's John going to do? Is John going to respond correctly? Is he going to confess Jesus? Will John answer this question faithfully? This brings us to point two, John's testimony. So how does John respond? Look at verse 27. 
He responds exactly the same how Jesus does. You look at verse 3 of chapter 3, we did it last week. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, well, I guess another way of translating this is from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does John say? A person cannot receive even one thing, he's talking about eternal life, unless it is given to him from heaven, from above. Disciples and Jews are now in Nicodemus's position. They're questioning Jesus because they have no idea. And John is a stand-in, a witness, a testimony for Jesus. So we have the same exact conversation that just happened with Nicodemus and Jesus, now with the disciples and John. That's why these two stories should be seen in lockstep together. They're the same story from two different people to two different people. John the Baptist, introduced early in chapter 1, is now providing his testimony. He calls him Lamb of God and takes away the sin of the world. And now he describes how does he do that. And here's the thing. Not only is John testifying to Jesus... But his words go against everything we know of in this culture. He says, a man cannot receive anything except it is given to him from heaven. So something outside of him can only give it to him. He can't kind of conjure up within himself. You and I live, move, and, and generally have our being in a culture obsessed with like, bring it from within yourself. Can't get it from outside yourself has to come from within yourself. And, and don't think about somebody else, think about you. I'm thinking about me. We are in no way clean of this thinking. This is seeped into us. It seeps into everything we do. It's the, it's the air we breathe. John says, you cannot receive anything. It doesn't kind of leave kind of wiggle room. Because you can't receive anything apart from God giving it to you. And a culture where you produce goodness and truth, if it's not from within you, you can't really call it mine. It's my truth, my beliefs, what I want. To hear, you can receive nothing but outside yourself, that's heresy. It's not outside of myself, it has to come from me. Not outside of me, it has to come from me. So to say it comes from outside of you and you can't receive it, that's heresy. We are more likely to think man must receive acceptance from those outside, but all he or she needs is within yourself. That's it. So the gospel is, is countercultural. It's not just counter us, it's countercultural. Birth from above, as Jesus explains to Nicodemus. We've, I think we've imbibed this. Even if we don't say we have, we have. We've imbibed to such an extent to ourselves we think. Come on, not, not everything comes from above. I play some part in this. So the question is, you mean I'm, I'm helpless? I can't do anything? I can't conjure up within myself? The nothing leaves no room for you or I. And, and that's what we need to hear. 
And so in verse 28, John the Baptist continues, I am not the Christ. Funny enough, he's already said this. Remember what he's asked by the Jewish priests and Levites in the middle of chapter 1. They ask him in verse 19, well, who are you? If you're not Moses, if you're not the prophets, you kind of look like them. Who are you? And in verse 20 of John 1, he says that he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He repeats himself in chapter 3. He's not the Christ, but he knows him. He wasn't, he was sent by heaven, but not from heaven. John shares no divine essence in his being, but he understands it. John might look like the Christ, they kind of think he is, and later on in the the Gospel of John, they assume Jesus is talking to Elijah, whom they think John is. But he tells them, I'm not the Christ. So here John goes again, going against culture. He is not the Christ, as John admitting, I am not the center of my universe. I'm, I'm not the thing everything revolves around. I revolve the thing. I revolve around Christ, not the other way. Christ does not revolve around me. There's no sovereign self. There's, there's no seeking affirmation for who John wants to be. No, John says, Jesus is better. It's a good thing things don't revolve around me because that would be terrible. Because if life was all about seeking affirmation, growing in your autonomy, doing things your own way, can you imagine how tiring that is? It's got to come from you. It's really the opposite. Jesus affirms you versus you need to get affirmation to say, this is who I am. Please take it. Please believe me. Jesus comes around and says, no, I affirm you in that you are a sinner, in that you suck, in that you can't do anything, in that you can't receive anything. When you confess that you sinned against me, that's when I affirm you. Not when you got things figured out. Not when you got the truth coming from you. It's like when you say, I can't do it, that's when he affirms you. Not affirming your sin. Jesus affirms you in your sin. Not your sin, but in your sin. When you say, Lord, I can't do anything. I am not the Christ. I'm not the one who defines my destiny. I'm not getting any better. My universe is too small. It revolves around me. I'm doing a horrible job of being my own savior. And no one else can do it but you. That's what John says. John is not the Christ, but he trusts in the Christ, not in himself. So continuing in verse 29, a beautiful metaphor comes from John's lips. One's so steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And this steeping in the scriptures is not because the bride is ready. Not because the bride is eagerly anticipating. That's not why this metaphor is so beautiful. From the sin of Adam and Eve, the first bride and bridegroom, to the last prophet describing Israel as a bride and God the Father as a bridegroom, 
all you see is the bride who's in infidelity, who's an adulterer, who sins, who transgresses, who's guilty, who's shameful. No sense that the bride is looking for the bridegroom. That's not why this metaphor is beautiful. It's not like your own wedding where you're eagerly anticipating the day. Like, I can't wait till I see my bride. I can't wait to see my bridegroom. That's not why this metaphor is beautiful. It's because the bridegroom is anticipating the bride. Not the bride is anticipating the bridegroom. John likens himself to the best man of the bridegroom, standing next to the bridegroom as he waits for this bride. Not his pure, not his perfect, but who's dirty. The bridegroom's looking forward to this. He can see in Jesus' eyes the absolutely pure love he has for the bride, and the bride doesn't deserve it. The bride wants nothing to do with the bridegroom. Because after so long, so many years, decades, millennia, the bridegroom's here. That's why John's rejoicing. Because John's been waiting. The prophet's been waiting. Who's going to come and take the bride? She's dirty. Doesn't look like she's in all good of shape. Has had a lot of lovers before him. And the bridegroom's here. The whole world's been groaning. And the church has her bridegroom. Therefore, in verse 30, it is necessary that the bridegroom increase and John to decrease. John says here, my job is complete. My mission's filled. I must literally step aside and decrease my visibility and role. I have prepared the way of the bridegroom and he's here. Now he uses a curious word here to describe Christ's increase. He's not just saying like he's got to get bigger, better, because he's already bigger, better, he's already holy, he's already perfect. But in about 21 of 22 times this word is used in the Old Testament, it's for the increase of image bearers. It's given at crucial points of redemptive history. It's given to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Increase and subdue. The increase is the same word. Given to Noah, same promise. Given to Abraham, same promise. Given to Moses, same promise. Given to David, same promise. John notices that's the guy. He's the one who's going to do it. They've all been commanded, increase, and he says, this guy's actually going to do it. He's actually going to increase. He's actually going to take this place. It's like John saying, he whom the entire Old Testament was looking forward to, who's finally going to bring God's presence all over the earth? There he is. Found him. And after John 3, John actually does disappear. He's literally saying, I must decrease, because you actually don't see him after John 3. Only times you see him is when he's beheaded. Literally, he decreased. He's got to increase, and Jesus takes basically center stage from John 4 onwards. 
and John's gone. Because he did it. Christ really does increase. And John really does decrease. And, and John keeps beating this drum. It's like Heidelberg Catechism 1 and larger Catechism and shorter Catechism 1. They, if I can combine them, they both say, Whose are you and why do you exist? Not to make much of myself and bring as much glory as I can to myself as possible. It's but I am not my own. I exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the increasing and decreasing that John's looking for. So John then describes Christ and Himself in verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way. He's probably talking about himself. He's, he's, I'm of earth. Don't look at me. Don't look at the messenger. Look at the message. And he who comes from heaven is above all, being Christ. What does John do according to verse 32? He bears witness to what Jesus has said and done, and yet very few believe him or receive his testimony. You've got a vivid picture of this, exactly what John's talking about at the beginning of John 3, with Nicodemus, the guy who should know. And again, when Jesus is confronted by the Jewish priests and Pharisees again in chapter 5, basically all of the Gospel of John is Jesus saying, this is who I am, and nobody believes him. You're not the Son of God. You came from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This message is hard. It requires you to decrease. It's not the thing that's like, work on yourself really hard, and then you can come to Jesus. Like, no, actually ground yourself into the ground, knowing that you're nothing, and then you can come to Jesus. And now that John has answered this question and confessed Christ, I'll ask the same question he's asked. How will you respond? This brings us to our last points, your response. Now that we know who Jesus is and what he's done, he starts speaking covenantally. It's this agreements that God has with his people, or agreement that God has with his son. God covenanted himself when he promised Abraham, I will multiply you and spread you out on this land. I will be a God to you and to your people. And to your offspring. So really, when you trust Christ, you say to God, that's right. You're not making him right, but you agree with him. Saying, that's true. What you said is true. What you said to Abraham, that's true. What he's also saying here in verse 33 is if you don't believe, guess what you call God? You're calling God a liar. You're saying your testimony is not true. What you told me and your son is not true. What you promised to our fathers is not true. So it's not just simply believing and not believing, kind of a, a haphazard thing. It's either saying, yes, God, you're true, or no, God, you're a liar. That's really what believing and non-believing is. That's why John says, whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. That's why it's so important. You cannot certify. You can't tell God, you're right, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm right. As if he needed your opinion. But it's you're either taking him for what he has promised or calling him a liar. 
Those are the only two options. Not believing in, in Jesus is not a simple decision, kind of weighing your options, trying to figure out what's true and what's not true, or I lean towards this or I lean towards this. It's not one of many deities, as if there's another godlike thing you'd rather believe, and I'll take some things from Jesus, some things from this person. It's really a claim that God is lied. You don't take Jesus' word, you're calling God a liar. Because John, an emissary, has sent one of, of God to proclaim the truth about Jesus, his forerunner, has come with the words of God. So you believe him, his testimony, you believe God. It's really a courtroom scene. He's in the court. He's the prosecutor and defendant. He's telling you, this is what God has said. Do you trust him? And for those who trust in Jesus, John says, you don't just get a measure of the Spirit as if Jesus kind of doles out parts of the Spirit to you. It's just kind of a limited amount of him. He's got to give pieces to you, pieces to you. He says, no, you get the full Spirit. You get everything. You get the entire Spirit who dwells in Jesus. The same Spirit who dwells in Jesus. You get. You get a third person, the triune Godhead, dwelling in you. Not just a piece of him. When you believe in Jesus, not just a part of him, you get everything. Everything that Jesus has, you get. That's what he's saying. Much of John's testimony revolves around verse 35. Because the love the Father has for the Son, and he is handed over all things to him. Remember, Jesus doesn't come as some new figure. He's, he's not, it's not like the Old Testament has, has been longing for him to come. The prophets have been longing for him to come. But he came to do what Adam, our first parent, failed to do. Adam was to subdue creation, have all things look to God, and Adam be his emissary, his sent one. He's supposed to take Eden, and he's supposed to expand the borders of Eden. Saying, I want this to grow. I want God's temple to grow. I want worship him to grow. But he fails to do so after being tempted by the Spirit. Jesus then comes to the second Adam, who earned this. He was given it because he earned it. Earned all things from the Father. Even though he already had everything with the Father before this. It's not like he didn't have this. He left the glory of his pre-incarnate self to earn the glory as a human. Everything that he has, then, he gives to you. The thing he earned as a human. He became human that he might fulfill what both you and I have failed to do. So commission comes forth in verse 36. Based off of all of this, it kind of wraps all this stuff into a bow. Because there's only two responses like we've been talking to, to what Jesus has said. You either believe in the Son, and you enter into eternal life. You enter into the kingdom of God. You enter into the temple that takes over the world. Or you don't believe. It's not just a simple decision. Unbelieving, like I said, is calling God a liar. 
Your testimony is not true. What you said is not true. And you enter into the eternal wrath of God. The temple of wrath versus the temple of God's righteousness. That's, that's what this is really all about as we conclude. Because the disbelief is to spurn the gospel of grace. Saying, I think you lied. I don't want that. I'm going to go somewhere else. The work Jesus has done to merit eternal life. He takes on human flesh to earn back as a human the glory he just had. And he gets it. And if we disbelieve, we spit in God's face. You're not true. You're not right. You're a liar and we walk away from this. Or is to believe in the Son of God. You believe that Jesus Christ, that his work is true. You believe what he did was for my sins. was for your sins. And what he did as the second Adam to take all things to work as the second person of God, the human, he gives you that. Again, it's not just kind of meted out in portions by the Spirit. Hey, you get a little bit of this, you get a little bit of this. It's you get everything. Absolutely everything the Son had, you have. You enter into the Son's finished work. Not to finish His work, but into the finished work. That's what you enter into. You don't enter more work, you enter into finished work. The one who is not trying to control all things, but has control of all things. Controls everything. Who earned all things. Who gives all things and who is all things. That's what you get when you believe. We're decreasing because Jesus increases. Now you have to force yourself down and lift Jesus up as you decrease as Jesus has increased. And, and as opposed to what we think, that's not a burden. That's really a joy. No, it, doesn't, it doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve on how big you get, how glorified you get, who you know. It revolves around Jesus. You enter now, if you believe, into eternal blessedness, where everything Christ has done, everything, without exception, has been given and is now promised to you. That's what you get. Let's pray. But we thank you for what you've done for us and your son. We hear in the testimony in John what Jesus has done for us <coughs> to live the life as the perfect man who leaves his pre-incarnate heavenly glory, comes and takes the form of man, does everything to earn and merit that glory and gives it to us. And Lord, instead of expecting us to clean ourselves up or, or do anything else, our entrance is knowing that we are broken, knowing that we cannot do anything, knowing that we're sinners, that we're dirty, we're shame-filled, guilt-ridden human beings. The bride who is not looking forward to the day of the bridegroom, and yet your son, the bridegroom, looks at us 
and is pleased. He beams, his smile goes from ear to ear, and that's how he looks at us. And that's who we are now. When we've taken on the identity of your son. When we thank you for this, we thank you for the testimony, we know this is true. That you're not alive. Everything you said is true. Pray this is true of us this day. For all this in your son's name.